Hey, everybody. So great to see you on this wonderful Sunday. Welcome, welcome. I love to hear all that great conversation. That is incredible. Um, hey, everybody. Man, it's so great to see uh, your smiling faces and uh, just hear all that great conversation happening. Um, our God is a God of conversation, so it's, conversation is a big thing here at Sedaris, so welcome. Um, I'll start with our newcomer lunch. That's right after here. Don't raise your hand if you have already signed up. You are accounted for. Um, but raise your hand if you uh, did not sign up online and, and would love to come to the newcomer lunch. It's about an hour. That'll start. It's about an hour long of pizza. You'll, you'll get filled up. Ooh. You'll get filled up before we send you out to enjoy some body of water in the city. Am I right? Whether it be Splash Park, South Lake Union, The Sound, Lake Washington. Okay, so. You've had four minutes to think. Who else would like to come to the newcomer lunch this morning on top of the seven that already said yes? Eight, nine, ten, eleven. Did I miss anybody? Perfect. Twelve? Twelve? Okay. Tylene, how about you order 15 people? There's always a couple extra that come. So if that's you and you didn't raise your hand, you are accounted for as well. We'd love to have you at the newcomer lunch. It's just right on the other side of this wall here. There's like a, a big dining hall in here. And so you'll just walk around and, and we'll have that lunch. It'll be wonderful. It'll be just wonderful. So um, it's a really fun time to just share a little bit with uh, you guys about what we're about here at Sedaris. So looking forward to it. Now, the second thing I'm going to do before we dive into the sermon is um, we uh, have told you guys that we're going to give you guys financial updates every quarter as to how we're doing as a church, um, just to keep everybody um, up to date with what's been going on. Our financial update last quarter uh, was essentially this. Hey, guys, we're doing great. We're on track in terms of gifts and pledges. With, last quarter with, uh, was essentially this. Hey, guys, we're doing great. We're on track in terms of gifts and pledges. With, with, uh, was essentially this. Is that reverb, Tyler? That, that's some reverb? What was that? Oh, I... I they're checking the, the live stream to make sure everything's sounding okay there. Okay, and it's coming back through here. Okay, that's what was happening. Okay, great. I was like, man, that's, I sound good today. No. Um, yeah, so uh, in the first quarter, we said, you know, we're, we're, uh, we set our budget in 2020, essentially, to be 15% increase over what, or in 2022, 15% increase over what uh, 2021 uh, giving and, and contributions were. And in the first quarter, we were on track with that with regards to gifts and pledges uh, to, to our year-end goal. And it's the same thing in quarter two, that uh, you guys are continuing to be uh, faithful and, and sacrificial towards the mission of God, and we're just completely humbled uh, that, that you guys would continue to, to invest here in what God is doing here at Sedaris and uh, at this local church and, and seeing, we think it's an incredible investment. You know, and we're, we're about to celebrate, we're about to have a summer of celebration of really seeing uh, all the work and all the energy and all the sacrifice that, that we've made on top of even uh, giving and, and gifts and contributions. Actually bring, we're going to have a, that baptism uh, service on, on July 10th of which a, a small handful of people are, um, are in talks right now to be baptized. And so it's continuing to be really encouraging uh, to see what everything God is doing through Sedaris and through the hearts of everybody who calls Sedaris home. So thank you. We just wanted to thank you guys. Um, give you guys just a round of applause for just... We're, we're just so excited. Uh, there's a song playing in the four-minute conversation of, I think the, the tagline goes, and we're just getting started. You know, God uh, hasn't forgot about Seattle. Uh, he is just actually getting started here is what we're seeing. And so we're continuing to see him work and move. And so thank you for continuing to give. And, and as giving goes throughout the year, we keep, we keep track of that. And, and if giving does come in over what we expected, uh, we, we usually um, kind of make some moves. And so at the end of last year, we saw giving come in um, over what was expected. And so we hired Tylene, you know, and she's been a wonderful, our, our, as our next full-time staff. And so we just look forward to seeing um, what your generosity can do in terms of increasing our uh, the amount of horsepower we put into participating with what God is up to here at, at Sedaris. So thank you so much again, and looking forward to it. Uh, what uh, is to come in 2022. All right, and then third, the third thing I'm going to do before uh, we lean into our time of teaching together is pray. Uh, because we need God to open up our hearts, our minds, and open up his scriptures to us uh, to the point where we can receive them. And so if you just uh, bow your head with me as we just look to him to open up his word to us, this conversation he started with us. Uh, Father God, um, we come to you, God, as, as, as your people. We come to you, God, perhaps as, as people who wouldn't call themselves your people right now. There, there are, are surely some of my friends here who are, are in that, uh, that category too, and we're so thankful that you have brought them here 
But we, we all look to you and, and we ask you right now, God, would you just open up our, our hearts and our minds to understand your word and, and what you have to say to us today, God? Lord God, I just ask that you would open up my heart and, and my mind to be able to communicate what your word says, Lord, and, and in a way that's faithful to, to your heart and, and, and what you want to see uh, accomplished here on earth now through your people, God. And so we just pray that, that your gospel of Christ would be on glorious display this morning, that, that, that your cross would be clearly not just understood, but felt and experienced even as, as we lean into your word and as we lead into worship after the fact as well. So, God, we, we, look, forward to seeing, we look forward to seeing what you are going to do today, Lord, and uh, we just humbly come before you and ask for your help. Pray all this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, if you um, brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. We use that each and every week. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, no worries. There's one uh, underneath a seat in front of you close by. You can grab that one and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as well. Um, that We're going to be working through the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, it's going to be, man, it's going to be a little bit of a marathon. There's a lot of big things in this chapter, a lot of, of huge ideas. Um, but we're, we're going to push through, and, and hopefully we're going to be able to really get uh, to the core of what Paul was hoping to help with the Corinthians with, that we might see uh, the gospel of Jesus in it, and, and, and then ask, okay, well, how can this help us today as well? Uh, and so today we come to chapter 10, which, uh, and let me, in terms of Paul's overall structure in 1 Corinthians, he's going to be wrapping up an argument that he started, or a discussion, you could say, uh, that started in chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10 uh, are all about um, how uh, to address and regard food sacrificed to idols. Um, this is something that we all struggle with. Uh, right? Yeah? Anybody have this question? Anybody have this? What do we do with uh, food sacrifice? It's incredibly relevant, isn't it? No. Um, <laughs> but this is a big question for them because something like 50% of the meat in the city of Corinth in the first century would have been originally sacrificed to an idol and then resold in the meat market. And so for the Christian community um, in Corinth at the time, it was a very applicable question to them. Like, how should we conceive of this stuff that's being sacrificed to the idol worship that we're not no longer participating in, um, but now there's this meat. Uh, should we eat it? Should we not eat it? And, um, and from Paul's, um, Paul's response to this, we saw this last week in chapters 8 and 9, we can surmise that a piece of their problem went like this. Um, more mature believers really, uh, they, 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 they saw themselves as being able to eat the food sacrificed to idols, uh, knowing that there is a difference between simply eating that food and worshiping that idol. They, they had this knowledge, okay, like, food is food, I can eat this food without worshiping that idol. However, there's always newer, uh, less mature, uh, Paul uh, refers to them as, as weaker Christians in their midst, who um, didn't exactly have that same ability. They couldn't separate out, they couldn't differentiate the eating of that food from the worship of that idol. It was really hard for them to do that. In fact, if they were to see a more mature or stronger Christian eating that food sacrificed to idols, they might think in their head, oh, Idol worship is okay. Idol worship is okay. Great. Okay, good. I didn't know that. Now I know that. They were missing this piece of knowledge is actually what Paul calls it, a piece of knowledge. And so what's the natural solution to this? What's the very natural solution to this? Well, out of love for the weaker brothers and sisters in the community, the church should pull together a class, right? Educating them on how to think about food sacrificed to idols. That's what they should do, right? That, that's what they, they should, that, and that's what Paul said. Wait, nope. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say, okay, well, there's a knowledge problem. We need to fix it with education. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, Paul, leaning on the peculiar wisdom of Christ, he offers a peculiar solution that we unpacked last week that goes like this. Your love for your Christian brother or sister in Christ actually shouldn't motivate you to educate them on this. Your love for your brother or sister in Christ should actually motivate you to give up your rights should actually make you change your practices in order that they aren't tempted to worship idols again. And, and, and Paul doesn't just suggest it as like, hey, this might be a good idea. Have you tried this? He commands it. He says, if, if my eating of meat is going to make my brother or sister uh, fall into worship of idols, I will never eat meat again. I'll be a vegetarian. Does anybody here try to be a vegetarian? 
That's rough. I mean it like four days, okay? Four days. It's rough. It's really rough. But Paul says, I would, I would be a vegetarian the rest of my life if it meant helping my, my single, he says, this is not all brothers, just a single brother and sister not fall into idol worship, pff, vegetarian for life. It's an incredible, mind-blowing love for a spiritual brother and sister. And, and Dave unpacked last week just, just the level of spiritual friendship that Paul has in mind here, which is just challenging. That, that's a huge challenge for us today. It was a great sermon. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to it. Uh, hit YouTube, app, podcast, Facebook. It's everywhere. You know? That's how we do things now, I guess. Uh, it's just everywhere. Um, but in, in chapter 9, uh, Paul uses himself as a positive example of giving up his rights to help weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, look at what I do, guys. He says, I don't take a salary from you even though it's my right that a minister of the gospel can take a salary, and he points to the Old Testament to say that, and he points to the other apostles that are doing that, and he says, it's my right, but you know what? I, I give up that right. Why? Well, probably because they're like in Corinth and, 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 and in and around uh, Athens and, and Rome in particular. They're traveling philosophers who would go from town to town to town to town, and you would pay them for their, their thoughts and their teaching. And so Paul says, I give up that right because I don't want my ministry for the gospel to be conflated and misunderstood as what these other guys are doing and for less mature brothers and sisters in Christ to think that, that I'm just one among a buffet. No, my teaching comes free of charge. It's altogether different. So I give up my right. And that's a pretty big right to take a salary. Uh, that's a huge right that he gives up. And the whole time, Paul highlights that it's the gospel that motivates him to do that. That it's, it's this peculiar wisdom of Christ who gave up his rights all the time instead of educating these 12 guys who's, who were following him around. If you read through the gospel accounts and, and, and look for this theme, like when did Jesus Christ uh, actually sidestep giving a full education to these, his disciples and give up a right? It's everywhere. It's a, this is a, how he lived his life, and then it's, the pinnacle of it is when he gives up his life or his right to life itself on the cross. Gives up his right to life itself so that the less mature, that's us, can be released from the bondage and the penalty of sin. And, and, and so it's out of that argument and context that we come to chapter 10. And, and in the beginning of chapter 10, Paul's going to bring up another example. And it's not a positive example. It's the Israelites in the wilderness. That, that's the time that the Israelites were, had just come out of, been delivered out of Egypt, but before they had gone into the promised land, it's about a period of 40 years, you know, about 13 to 1,500 years before Paul is writing here. And, and, and to give you a heads up, it's not a positive example, but he's not using them as a negative example of what it doesn't look like not to give up your rights He's actually shifting and making another argument here uh, about food sacrificed to idols. He has this new argument in mind, and I want to show you that new argument. I'll just give you his, the conclusion of it. That's where we see it most clearly. It's in verse 14. He says, So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. This is his argument. That's his conclusion. This is what I want to, this is the point that I'm making with the, we're going to get into these examples here soon. So, friends, then free, or flee from idolatry. You're asking me about uh, food sacrificed to idols. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about that for a couple chapters. Now I'm going to spend some time just talking about idol worship generally because there's something uh, that you're missing here. We need to round out your understanding of what idolatry is. Flee from idolatry. So after providing this, this possibility that one could eat food sacrificed to idols, Paul feels this need to follow it up and qualify that statement, to, to, to qualify that, that, that suggestion because something else is at stake in his mind, not just that someone might lead someone else astray, but that, that coming into close proximity to idols and to idol worship was risky business was really risky business. Uh, these, these verses are kind of addressed to that more mature believer in 1 Corinthians 10 that thinks they can come close to this idol worship and, and participate in the food. And, and, and we'll say here in a minute that, or we'll see here in a minute that Paul will say to that person, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Be careful. Be careful. Whoever thinks that they do stand, that they are strong, they need to be careful that they don't. 
that they don't fall. Don't get too big for your britches. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, idolatry in its physical form um, is very alien to the Western so, uh, to, to Western society, is it not? It's a very alien concept that, that we struggle to really fully grasp. It's, it's different in places like India. Uh, when I was in uh, Calcutta a long time ago, like 10, 12 years ago, uh, we walked past a temple that sacrificed like a dozen goats every day right there, you know? And it was just like a very startling experience. I was like, whoa, my Western mind, like I've read about this in the Bible plenty, but like my Western mind has never, and, and, and I've never encountered this before. And it just kind of blew my mind. And I was like, this happens and like what's going on here? Uh, it's a very, f- a fairly alien concept to my, my Western self. It was very common there. Um, so I want to spend a little, a few minutes before we dive into what Paul has to say, just building out the abstract of idol worship so that all of us can really have the right thing in mind as we read through this passage, okay? Um, um, and so I'll start like this. Um, with idol worship, and th- there's always a promise attached to that idol. Okay, so, so the idol or, or the god or whatever, there's a promise attached to it, and, and the way to access or attain that promise was to bring a sacrifice to them. All right, so, so the biggest idol in Corinth, for example, was the goddess of love, Aphrodite. Aphrodite, big goddess of love. People would travel to Corinth to sacrifice to the goddess Aphrodite. Um, and, and bringing a sacrifice to her was to, uh, was to seek uh, the promise of romantic love and sex. Okay, and by Paul's time, it even earned you time with a prostitute. All right, so, so that's, that, that was Aphrodite. But, but there are all sorts of gods in Corinth and all sorts of temples uh, to them. Uh, Poseidon was in Corinth. There was a temple to him. Poseidon is the god of the sea, and to bring a sacrifice to him, that you are asking him to, to bless your seafaring journey, your business endeavors that happened by the sea. Corinth was a port town. It was a port town. And so you'd go to, to sacrifice to Poseidon in, in, in Corinth. And there are temples to, to other gods, Apollo, Hermes, Isis, Titan. Each of these promised different things. Apollo would, would appease your guilty conscience. Isn't that interesting? Appease your guilty conscience. Hermes would, would, would promise to bring you wealth. Isis promised healing. Titan promised power, influence. And, and so we have all these, these gods and, and that are present then. And while we don't have physical idols or physical temples necessarily or offer goats to these gods in, in order to win their promises here in the West today, we still chase after and sacrifice to things that promise us romantic love, that promise us commercial success, that, that promise to make us feel better about the wrong that we have done, that promise to heal us even, that promise us power or influence. We just don't have the tangible artifact between us and that promise. And, 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 and that, the, the abstract nature of those things, that the promise of, of romantic love, commercial su- success, wealth, those are really the idols in and of themselves. And, and we're tempted to sacrifice to them all the time, all the time. Take image, for example, image. If you want to create an image for yourself, what do you do? Well, there's a, a host of things that you might, might do in order to build your image. And there's lots of gods around that promise to elevate it. It could range from diet and exercise, that's your physical image, to, to social media posts, to the friends you select for yourself, that is the people you attach yourself to, the, the, the things that you attach yourself to, the, the causes you attach yourself to. With regards to image, you could spend a lot of, of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, that's sacrifice language, making sure that, that, that your image, what you're projecting to the world, is in fact what you want to project, okay? Now, now there's nothing, it's really important to say, there's nothing inherently or intrinsically or necessarily wrong with image. And in, in fact, the scriptures tell us that each of us are the image of God. So there's, there's no way around it. You have an image. You have an image. And our image then also presents us, this is what the scriptures tell us, with the unique opportunity to say something about God, about the creator of the universe. So image can be like, a, it can be an incredible, incredible gift. It can be used for incredible good. But, but the question is, have you taken this good, God-given thing, the fact that we have the opportunity to, pro- to project a message about him, and, and have we taken that 
and instead become focused on projecting an image about us? Have we kind of taken possession of image, and we've turned it into a, I'm going to use this to project something about myself, and it's really what I'm all about in life. It's my ultimate thing. I've taken the good thing that God has given me in, in my image, and I've turned it into an ultimate thing to meet and feed my own desires. Is, is what your image says about you really what you're all about in life? This is kind of how we begin to evaluate. What, have I really taken image, taken possession of it? And, and has it become an idol in my life? Well, what are you using it for? That's, that's a big question. How much sacrifice is there in it? Time, money, energy? Um, do you fantasize about what it would be like to have a better image? Or do you scheme about how you can increase it for your own sake? And, and, and then finally, what were to happen if someone were to threaten a piece of it or take it away altogether? Would you flash up in anger? Would it send you into an irreversible, depressive tailspin? Those are usually indicators, oh, something's an idol in my life. Someone's taken an idol away from me. If all your Instagram photos disappeared as you sleep tonight, what would tomorrow morning look like? So if your answers are, are, well, I tailor my image to meet my desires, I spend a ton of time and money and energy on it, I growl when it's threatened, I'm uncontrollably upset when it's taken away, well, it might be an idol in your life. Now, now this isn't a, a sermon on image, right? I'm just giving this as an example of, of how we can begin to assess and think of idols and think of our sacrifice to things and, and think of the things that we're trying to reach out and what promises are we trying to attain? Where are we looking to, to see those things realized? It can be with anything. We can do it not just with image, but romance, wealth, health, success, intelligence, education, work, all of these things. There's a long list of, of things, of idols that, that promise us beautiful things that we can reach out to and sacrifice to them. So idol worship is everywhere today. Just like it was everywhere in Corinth, we just don't have the physical things, the physical idols lining the streets like they did. It's everywhere. And, but, and here's the problem for followers of Jesus. This is what Paul's about to say. When we give into it, when we participate with it, it's not just a distraction. It's not just an oopsie-daisy. Paul's going to tell us it places us in actual, real, spiritual peril. This is a heavy passage as a heads up. This, it, he's going to say it puts us in a spiritually perilous place. So th this passage is a warning of idol worship. We, we've moved, shift gears from you should love your brother and sister to you should be careful yourself to guard yourself from idol worship. So, so, um, and so Paul's going to go through three things here. We're just going to go through them today. The, the first thing he does is... Um, he really speaks to uh, the examples of idol, idol worship in the history of Israel, um, and particularly in this wilderness time that I've, I've referenced. So he talks about the history of it. Then he's going to follow up and talk about like a spiritual reality that's at play behind idol worship that the Corinthians may not have fully recognized or known. And then third, he's going to really provide uh, kind of like some physical examples of, of what to do. Uh, for the, the, the ways that the Corinthian church would have most likely encountered this decision, you could call it a case study, all right? So we're the, the history, the spiritual reality, and, and a, a case study. So um, let's read the first 14 verses of chapter 10 together, and, and then we'll dive into the, the history that, that Paul is pointing at for us. Paul says, um, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ, he says. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we do not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some, of the, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did 
and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And this is such a crucial, complicated piece of scripture. Paul's talking about Jesus from the Old Testament, Christ. Other New Testament writers do this as well. And we're talking about it in the same context, kind of in the context of, of Israel's unbelief in the wilderness time. Jude does this. The author of Hebrews does this. Chapters 3 and 4. We could probably do three sermons on just these 14 verses, but we're going to pack it all into a single point, okay? So, you ready? Here we go. Um, what, is he, what is he saying in this section to us? What is Paul saying to us? What is he saying to the Corinthians, to us? He's saying these Israelites are more spiritually like you than you care to think, and you're more carnally like them than you care to admit. That's what he's saying. He's saying all of them experienced the presence of God in the cloud. All of them experienced baptism. They didn't call that that then. Baptism is a very New Testament church term that Paul's taken and applying to the Old Testament Israelites coming out of Egypt as they crossed through the Red Sea as the cloud protected them from the advancing Egypt army. All were baptized, he said, each and every one of them. All experienced the miraculous manna. All drank the miraculous water. And that water was Christ. Paul has in mind Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. That's what Paul has in mind. Paul has in mind Jesus saying, I am the living water. No one who drinks from me will ever thirst again. This is, these are the things that Paul has in mind, and he's saying it was, it was presence for them. They experienced the Messiah very similar to how you did as well. Nevertheless, Paul says, God was not pleased with them. God was not pleased with them. Since most of them were struck down in the wilderness, that's a huge understatement. Only two made it through. Two. Everybody else struck down in the wilderness. And, and, and why were they struck down? Paul ties it to their desire for evil things. Their desire for evil things. Don't desire evil things as they did, which produced idol worship. And, and he lists these four examples of it. And, and, and what does he say? He says these examples are for us. That makes us uncomfortable. I'm, I, was far more, I was far more comfortable with the fact thinking that these examples were preserved for them. They were. Paul says, yeah, it's us too. They're more spiritually like us than we care to admit. We're more carnally like them than, than we care to admit. These are preserved for our sake. He's saying that we're capable of the same shortcomings they were, the same ones could end up in the same spiritually perilous place, which is where? The opposite end of God's justice. Ouch. Paul's trying to wake the Corinthians up. He's trying to wake all Christians up to the humbling reality that one can spend their life as a follower of Christ, yet be displeasing him at the same time. And he's trying to say, do you think that because you prayed a prayer and you were baptized that God gives you a free pass on how to live your life? That's not what being a follower of Jesus means. What phrase has he said twice in this letter up to this point? Chapter 6 and in chapter 7, Paul reminds the Corinthians, you were bought at a price, which means what? God owns you. God owns you. To say you're a Christian is to say that God owns you. God owns me. God bought me. He paid a price for me, Jesus, on the cross. And Paul brings up these examples to show what happens when the people of God, whom God owns, begins to believe, act, and even explicitly declare otherwise, that God doesn't own them. What happened? God was not pleased with them. Paul says these examples are for us, so we really can't just glaze over them. Um, we, we, we must look at them, and, but I want to say a couple things um, by clarification on the front end here. We really can't say anything definitive about the eternal resting place of the Israelites who 
were struck down in the wilderness. We, we really can't do that. Um, we, well, the only person we can say something definitive about is Moses. Moses, likewise, because of his disobedience, wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. And we know for sure that that guy actually ends up with God. So, so the only definitive thing we can say is uh, an example that's the opposite. All right, so we really can't say anything definitive. And so while we may, we, we, we could think that, you know, we're kind of in a similar position to them in terms of we're kind of in this wilderness, this time waiting for the full promised land of God, his full kingdom to God, a lot like theirs. Um, uh, the, the promised land and, and heaven are not the same. They're very different things. They're very, very different things. And so while, while Paul is reminding us that we're like the Israelites, uh, these uh, sojourning destinations, while they're similar, they're definitely not the same thing in any way, shape, or form. Um, so that, that's, that's the first clarification I'll make. And, and if you want to see that teased out more, we don't have time to go there this morning. That's in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. You can make a note of that and go see that. Um, and the second thing I'll say um, is in response to the big question, which I know several of us are asking in our midst that, that unfortunately um, certain churches proclaim as true is, um, uh, and certain people even proclaim as true is, does God still do this today? Uh, that, that might be the thing that's really grating on your heart right now. So I want to just, just address that question real quick before moving on. Um, and and I, I can't give you a complete and absolute unequivocal no because... We actually see God act this way in Acts chapter 5 in, in the New Testament, but we don't have the time to go to Acts chapter 5 and show how, how that is like night and day different, the set of circumstances, night and day different than the examples that Paul lists here. There's so many differences between uh, how we see Paul do that in the case of Ananias and Sapphira um, in the New Testament church than, than how we see these examples work out. They're, they're so, so different. Um, and also we do know that Jesus on the cross absorbed the penalty for sin. He absorbed the penalty for sin on, on the cross. And so we actually, it's really difficult for us to, to confidently say and, and it, that, that God's judgment has come out and, and, and flamed out and, and killed people here on this earth because, because we see on the cross that God's judgment, uh, his penalty for sin is really accounted for in the person of Christ. Um, and, and, and so and that's not what Paul's trying to say here. That's probably the biggest thing. Paul's not trying to say you need to watch out or God could do to you what he did to the Israelites. That's not what he's doing here. I, I think that the Lord will rebuke those of us who will use this passage to say something like that one, one day. Uh, here Paul is saying that it's possible to be the people of God and displease God. That the advent of the cross says that, yes, the Lord's grace and his mercy cover over sin, uh, over the sin of his people, but it's still possible to displease God here. That's Paul's primary focus. He's like, we don't want to displease God. We have some examples that, that, that he does act in, in, in really intense ways when he's dis, displeased. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to inspire that, that experience in him? So that, that, that's the second clarification I'll make before we dive into these examples. So, so let's dive into them. Let, let's get into them here. Um, the first one here, he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Uh, that's a direct quote from Exodus 32, where, where Paul is really talking about the, the golden calf that they make while Moses is up on the mountain. And Moses comes back down the mountain. Paul's like, hey, Moses, they're down there, and, and it's, it's, it's bad, man. You got to go down there and check this out. And Moses is like, okay goes down there, he checks it out, and he sees, he comes into this crazy drunken party is what he walks into. And the, the, the first phrase off of his, his lips as, as he sees it, as he says, we are a laughingstock to the surrounding nations. Anybody looking in on this, we are a laughing Like even the, the people who don't believe in Yahweh, they are, would laugh at what they see happening here, that this drunken party that's going on here, they, we are a laughing stock. We're a laughing stock. 3,000 people were killed that day. Then, then Paul points to a, a plague that, where 23,000 people died, which is recorded in Numbers 25. We'll throw it on the screen here for you, Numbers 25. I just want to, we, we have to look at this because we can really capture the heart of the people, of everything that's going on here, so that we can begin to apply this passage to us. 
Numbers 25, while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshiped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. And then later we'll go on to say that 20,000 people, 23,000 people died that day. Um, and then Paul points to Numbers 21. Numbers 21, start in verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against Moses, Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. That's the manna. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Um, so, so Paul says the people of God complained, and, and, and they were killed for that. And, and then kind of, uh, the, Paul even references a, a, another, and so this is the time when he says, let us not test Christ. And then he says, well, um, and, and don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Uh, no one really knows exactly what Paul has in mind here because really what's going on is you have uh, another you know, five or seven times in the Old Testament where Israel complained and, and we, we see them encounter a plague or a fire that, that, that kills them. So, so no one really knows exactly which one that's referring to, but, but the, the great place to go there is uh, Numbers chapter 14. This is kind of the, the quintessential view of it here. We're going to start it in, in verse 1. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and, and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and our children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. So Moses and, and Aaron are, they, they, they engage the Lord on this, and they say, God, can you please help us? And this is how the Lord responds to them. The Lord said to Moses, this is in verse 11 of the same chapter, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me, despite all the signs I have poured, performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them, and I will make you, Moses, into a greater and mightier nation than they are. God also said this to Moses back in the, the golden calf instance. But Moses interceded again on behalf of Israel, and God says, okay, well, I won't destroy them, but none of them are going to be able to enter into the promised land because of their complaining. And why don't they trust in me? That's language of unbelief. Why don't they believe me? That what I'm saying I'm going to do, I will do for them. God's saying no matter what, actions I do to this people, no matter how powerfully I deliver them out of slavery from one of the most powerful nations on earth, no matter how much I meet their physical needs of food and water, no matter how patient and, and enduring and faithful I am to them, they still just want to satisfy their evil desires. They're not, they won't follow me. I'm not enough for them. They think they deserve better. They don't think that I am powerful enough to protect them. They don't think I am powerful enough to sustain them, to provide for them. I am not enough for them. And that's the core of the issue. Paul provides it as a heading here back in, in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, these examples are preserved so that we will not desire evil things, so that we will not look elsewhere than the promises of God. You see, this desire... And, and this is the big idea that I want us to take away from these examples. And I think it's the big idea that Paul wants us to take away from these examples. In this desire, there's, there's a, a commingling of, of selfishness. We don't have enough uh, of, of pride. We deserve better. And unbelief, God can't deliver us. We have to look elsewhere. Let's go back to Egypt. These are present in different ways in each one of these examples and, and woven together and feeding off of one another in a certain sense. And, and when these, all of these things come together, they really form this evil desire 
within our, you call it a sinful desire within our hearts that, that festers and it grows and it sits there. Where does this come from? We might say, well, may, maybe this evil desire, it comes from temptation. And that's close. It really comes from the entertaining of temptation. The entertaining of temptation. It's when temptation knocks on the, I use that word entertaining really intentionally. It's when temptation knocks on the door and we open it up. And we say, yeah, let's have a conversation about this. Oh, how about you come on in and sit on my couch? Here's a glass of water. I'm going to entertain. Let's have a conversation about this. Entertaining temptation. It's not shutting the door in temptation's face. It's opening up, fantasizing about it, imagining it. Oh, man, this really could be great. Oh, man, that would be so wonderful. Why can't I just see this happen in my life? Oh, that'd be amazing. To the point of there's this longing, this this selfish, prideful, unbelievable, uh, unbelieving longing that's present within our very being for that sin. This is the sinful desire that Paul's talking about. It's the essence and the core of sin. These are just sinful acts that we want that, that eventually manifest out of it. It's, it's present everywhere. I mean, desire always leads, um, leads the actual physical acts of sin. It's, it's, it's always there. Sinful desire is temptation entertained. Eve did it in the garden. Temptation shows up, and, and what does she do? She doesn't shut the door in, in, in the serpent's face. It says, she saw and desired that the fruit was beneficial for making someone wise. Ooh, that would be nice. If I was wise like God. Ooh. Well, well I could make decisions then. Oh, that would be great. See, there's, there's an entertaining of temptation that breeds all sorts of sinful desire within our soul. And these other kind of surface-level stuff, drunkenness, sexual immorality, complaining, grumbling that, that Paul points to, those are, those are expressions of that inner sinful desire. This is what Paul's doing. He's, he's highlighting this crucial chain of events present for us that, that, that are present within the, the Israelites here, present, that can be present within the, the, the people of God nowadays where temptation knocks on the door, where we entertain temptation. That is, we, we imagine and fantasize the sin, creating a sense of longing for it. That, that breeds all sorts of, of pride. I deserve this. Selfishness, I need that. Unbelief. God would, God, God's holding back good for me. That's what you've thought. All that becomes present in our hearts, and then we lean into idolatry. We reach out for the things that promise us, that promise to meet those desires that we have in our hearts. Temptation entertained. And that's exactly why Paul gives us the beautiful promise of verse 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you will be able to, he will always give you the power to slam that door. He will never let a, a, a temptation salesman on the foot of your doorstep that you wouldn't be able to slam the door in. You know, there's some that are really pushy, right? Really pushy people come to my door sometimes. God will never allow a, a, a too powerful and pushy temptation to arrive at your doorstep, and he will never not give you the power to shut that door on the temptation that is there. Never is what Paul says. It's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful promises of Scripture. All temptation has an escape hatch. But I want you to see that overcoming temptation is not necessarily just avoiding the sin that it's pointing to. It's avoiding and running away from the sinful desire that it wants to incite within our hearts. That's what avoiding temptation really is. It's, it's to, to not allow it to create desire in our hearts. Because that desire, left unchecked and unrepented of, will eventually manifest in whatever sin that is. So what's Paul saying then? you got to be so careful when you're in the realm of idol worship. That's what he's saying. When you're there, when you're participating in that meet, you better not be thinking, oh man, this, maybe this could give me access to the promise of, our, of, 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 of these gods, of Aphrodite, of Hermes, of Apollo. Maybe this, maybe, maybe. No, he's saying if you're tempted in any way, you should run, you should get out of there. You should leave the meat behind. Free idolatry because we're in, when we're entertaining temptation, we're in a spiritually perilous place. That's what the history 
of Israel tells us. All right, that's, that's really intense. That's, that's the most intense part of, of 1 Corinthians 10. Um, we're going to move on to Paul's next piece of the argument. Um, I often find, though, that, that different things are intense for different people. Uh, but this one is the spiritual reality behind idol worship that Paul wants to point to. Um, so let's pick it up in verse 14 again. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. You have the, you have, God has given you the power. He is faithful. He's given you the power to flee idolatry. So you'd be faithful in response. I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share in one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. You cannot, oh, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and in the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? He's repeating this word over and over and over. He doesn't have to. He could refer to them in third person. Boom, boom, boom. He's really trying to highlight there's a spiritual reality at play behind this, guys. And, and, and there's a bit of irony packed into it at the beginning. He says, I'm speaking to sensible people. And maybe you picked up on it if you've been tracking through us or tracking through First Corinthians with us. The, the Corinthians really thought they were this knowledgeable, wise people. And so this is essentially Paul saying, oh, so you wise people, get ready. I have some logic for you. All right, here's some, here's some just basic logic I'm going I'm to dish to you. He says, when we participate in the, club, in the cup, he's talking about the Lord's Supper and the bread, when, and, and it, there's this like, it's a pretty forceful Greek word. There's like, when there's a communal, it's not just sharing, it's like a communal participation in this where we're united to one another as the body of Christ, is this not an expressive worship of God and we would celebrate anybody who would come up and take it and see them as somebody who is worshiping the God Almighty and we would celebrate that? He's like, just, just use the simple logic, guys. If, they were to come, if a, a non-Christian were to come into your midst and participate there, you would think that they are following Jesus Christ. The same, with, the same was in, in Israel with, with their sacrifices and the altar. I'm speaking to you guys sensibly. Do you see this logic? He's bringing to light that, that, to, that the plain fact that to consume the sacrifices of God in the context of worship to that God, and that's what he has in mind here, this reference to the table. Uh, New Testament theologian Craig Blomberg um, really smart guy. He says, oh, Paul clearly has a worship kind of service at the temple in mind here, where there's a table of worship, kind of like what we're doing here. And so if someone were to come in the last three songs and eat this bread, we'd say, oh, they're communally participating in us as a body as we worship the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if this bread was still here tomorrow and someone was walking by and ate it, we wouldn't think that. <laughs> We, we, we totally wouldn't think that. So there, there's very clearly like there's a worship element involved in this table towards that God. And, and, to, cons- and to participate in that, how can that be consistent with participating in, in a worship service for God? And, and Paul's con- concerned with this for the spiritual reality at play behind it. He says there's real spiritual people and persons <clears throat> behind these idols that are empowering them. We must admit that. At the end of the day, an, an idol is not going to get a following unless, the, unless there's a little juice there that's actually powering it. Unless the sacrifices are actually beginning to produce the promises in people's lives and they start telling other people about this. There's a little bit of juice behind this is what Paul's saying. There's a spiritual reality of a spiritual person behind it juicing this cult of Aphrodite, juicing a Titan, juicing Apollos, juicing image, romantic love, power. Paul says that just like our personal God who's behind the Lord's Supper, giving us and empowering us to follow him and, and delivering on his promises. Can I get an amen? Just like that, there's juice at this table. There's juice at that table. You need to be so, so, so careful. You need to be so careful. It's not equal juice. 
those demons might deliver on their promises for a time, but eventually, really, all they're focused on is redirecting worship from the one true God to anything else, anything other than the one true God. And they have real juice that they're using in order to do that. And, and that brings us to a second point. So for a Christian to be present at a festival where you're consuming that which was sacrificed to the demons at, at the table, kind of in that, like that worship notion with them, it, 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 there's no way you can do that and not present yourself as a participation in that group and in what they worship. There, there, there's no way you can get away from that. That, that to sit at that table, there's no way you can get away that you're also worshiping in that way with them. And, and to sit at that table and, and the table of Christ, this one that we're going to sit at together today by partake, coming up here and partaking of it, that's preposterous. That's, that, look at what Paul just showed them about what happens when idol worship happens. When they sit at those tables, when they go to Ball of Peor, sit at those tables, those festivals. What ha- he says, what? Are you, are you going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? You're going to provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are you stronger than he? It's a really snarky comment. Up to this point in the argument, he's saying, you strong Christian who think you can entertain, that, that think you can be around this stuff without partaking in it, if you're really going to incite the Lord to jealousy, you, are you stronger than him? Are you stronger than God? He's trying to call out their pride here. I'm stronger than, than other Christians. I can definitely partake in this. But are you stronger than God, Paul says? Are you stronger than his jealous judgment? How does this apply then? Right? We've been talking in abstract goat sacrifices for 10 minutes here. Okay? I realize that. How does this apply here? I'm going to take one example. Part of this is, is really leaning into your own life and, and looking at where your sacrifices are. I'm going to take one example that, that Paul brought up, or sorry, not Paul, that Dave brought up last week. Um, Dave, Dave talked about how, how yoga could be in, in a situation where, where someone is leaning into the practice of yoga just for the health and wellness part of it, but someone else, they really can't separate the exercise of yoga from the, the leaning into yoga as access to spiritual tranquility or peace, okay? And so Dave said, you know what? If, if you have a brother or sister that would stumble in that area, you should really not do yoga with that person, okay? Um, so when we're thinking about yoga, something like this would probably apply to something like a, you can imagine a yoga convention where there's a bunch of people coming from all over the like from from all over to come together and really lean into yoga and and the spiritual ways that they can tap into this spiritual reality to to deliver on the promise of tranquility or whatever is being sought for in that moment paul says don't go there that's a table of worship that's a table of worship that's a table of worship some of us might even feel this way when we're in perhaps a yoga class and, and the instructor is making it super, super, super spiritual. And saying we're accessing, you know, like all the namaste stuff hard, you know. Paul might say, you might consider getting out of there. He might say, hey, I just paid 20 bucks to be here. <laughs> Paul says, are you stronger than God? Are you stronger than God? All right, that's the spiritual reality behind all this. So let's move to our last piece of the puzzle, which really, Paul is bringing his whole argument from 8 through 10 together in a really beautiful way here. Um, and, and, and he's bringing in mind just like, basic. this is how they would have experienced it, kind of the case study, okay? He says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. This is kind of a saying that was said around Corinth and the, the Roman world. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. He's kind of altering it now. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that's sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. Since the earth is the Lord, the, the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is sent before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food this is food from a sacrifice. Do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything. 
not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So he says, with regards to the market, stuff you're going to come across, 50% of the food, I guess that the, the archaeologists are, say, the sociologists say, 50% of the food you're going to come into contact with is probably sacrificed to an idol. He says, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't ask a lot of questions about it. It's fine. Everything is the Lord's. And I, don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time assessing this, uh, this kind of question here, um, except to say that it's really interesting that Paul doesn't call for a boycott of this meat, that if you were to buy it, would fund demon worship. That's just fascinating that he doesn't call for a boycott here. That, I think that's something to wrestle with. You know, I think sometimes we can say, this is funding that, and so we, all Christians must boycott this. If that's your personal kind of conviction, great. But, but to kind of make a generic statement would be to kind of go against probably the most extreme example, that clear, and clear example in Scripture that we have from Paul here. Um, anyways, now if you're at a meal, this is what Paul says. Now if you're at a meal and someone, we don't know who this someone is, whether it's a weaker brother or sister that's with you, whether it's another non-believer at the meal, whether it's a non-believing host that's at the meal, but if just someone brings up the fact that this meat has been sacrificed to an idol, if, if, if someone breathes religious significance into that meal. Paul says, stick to the vegetables. Stick to the, the vegetables. Why? For the sake of their conscience. It's, it's fine for you. It's not going to darken your conscience, but for the sake of their conscience, it's for the sake of your weaker brother or sister of Christ. It's for the sake of perhaps someone who might be looking in from the outside, non-believer. You have the opportunity to say, you know what? My God is so great. He is worth Giving up meat at this meal for. It's something small. But he's worth giving up meat at this meal for. He is worth that to me. And in that way, that's one way, Paul's saying, you can bring glory to God. Whether in all, in any, all you're eating, whether you eat or whether you don't eat, bring glory to God. See that? See that there? Now, some of us are like, sheesh. Why didn't he just say these things and move on? Could have saved two long sermons kind of intense sermons. Well, it's beautiful. Paul's leaning on the love of Christ in such a wonderful way, present for the the body of Christ. Verse 24, no one is to seek his own good, but the, the good of the other person. Imagine a world like this. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. We can long for that. That's something that we can set our hearts on. Oh, wow, how beautiful that, who is really the only, everything else that's promised to deliver that can't. Who's the only person that can? God, let's long for that. Paul says, I'm not seeking it for my own, my own benefit, but the benefit of others. John writes his gospel, John 3.16, everybody knows that verse. He writes it in an epistle as well, a letter. First John 3.16, it's also another great verse. He didn't put the numbers in there. They did that later, but it's kind of providential, I think. This is 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for our Christian brothers and sisters. Wow. And so Paul is saying, essentially what I'm talking about is that in your eating, not eating, prioritize the glory of God. And the primary way that we bring glory to God is by one of the primary ways, exalting Christ, exalting Christ, pointing to him and, and his love and how his, his actions of love and laying down his life for us motivate us to lay down our lives for one another, maybe even give up and give up our rights for someone who might even be outside the faith to love them. Whoa. Not eating on its surface. It might look petty. It might look backwards. It might look uncool. But if it's what an outsider needs is to see that God has incredible worth in my heart, if it's what my Christian brother or sister needs in order not to confuse worship of idols, oh, what a worthy cause to give it up for. And, and without all this long-winded reasoning, we wouldn't have received this warning, this warning that Paul gives us about entertaining temptation. He says this is way bigger than just like, eating food. This is about the condition and the position of your heart. Don't let your heart chase after things. Your body will be soon to follow. 
But God is faithful. He always provides a way out. This is the great promise. You're not enslaved to sin anymore, Paul says. God broke that power through the cross. Those who put their faith in Jesus are no longer bound, bound by it. It's an incredible, incredible promise. At times, I get it. It can feel like, man, am I ever going to master this? But God is faithful each and every time. He empowers us to shut the door. How might we shut the door? How? What are the ways out? What are the ways out? That's, that's probably one of the most important questions here. What are the ways out that God has provided us? We spend time with him. We pray. We pray. I was counseling someone this week, and, and they're saying, how can I increase my prayer life? And I was like, just write half a page of prayer to God every day. See what that does. See what that does to your prayer life. We lean into his word. More importantly, we even memorize portions of his word. Those are ready. We have those ready to go. Those little verses slam the door faster than anything else is what I find. Anything else. We lean into his church. We lean into one another. We shoulder one another's burdens. We share our struggles. These are all the ways that God has provided us with ways out. Let's run after them so that we might not entertain uh, temptation, so that we might display a pure and beautiful worth that we have for the almighty creator of the universe and value that we have for one another. Let's pray.